You might be right. It's simple, but something you almost never hear in politics today, with each side more concerned about scoring political points than solving problems. I'm Bill Haslam, a Republican. And I'm Phil Bredesen, a Democrat. We're former Tennessee governors, and we invite you to listen to our podcast, You Might Be Right. Join us and guests like Al Gore, Paul Ryan, Judy Woodruff, as we take on important issues facing our country. Listen and subscribe to You Might Be Right, a new podcast from the Baker School at the University of Tennessee. In a fast-paced world, every day brings new challenges and new opportunities. At Strayer University, we know a thing or two about getting and staying ahead of change. For over 130 years, we've been providing students like you with innovative tools and customized support. So you can find your way forward and always keep striving. Visit Strayer.edu to learn more. Strayer University is certified to operate in Virginia by CHEV and has many campuses, including at 2121 15th Street North in Arlington, Virginia. Let the word go forth. Fool me once. Are you fired up? I'm not a crook. Are you ready to go? Shame on, shame on you. It's Abe Lincoln's Top Hat, hosted by Ben Kissel. Fool me, can't get fooled again. Welcome to the show, everyone. I'm Ben Kissel, as always, joined by Marcus Parks. Uh, the next episode will get you back up to date on what's happening in, two, in the 2016 election madness. But on this episode, we're proud to uh, have a guest. His, uh, he's a uh, former covert operations officer with the CIA. He's the president and co-founder of Diligence LLC. He also has a show on the Travel Channel uh, coming out called America Declassified. Mike Baker is with us. Thanks for being here, Mike. No, thank you very much. I appreciate the opportunity. Yeah, this is a big one for you. You ready? <laughs> this, I'm ready. This is make I'm or ready. break. And, and I like the fact that you said you're going to sort out in the next one, the 2016 uh, election. Yeah, we, you may be the first person to do that. Oh, my God. Every week on this show, we conquer it. I mean, people are getting so much information. It's shocking. We're really dumbing down the country. <laughs> <laughs> well, you, the candidates have done that for you, but yeah, it, it's nice of you to help them. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Thank you so much. Um, so I was wondering, so uh, you you were obviously, you were with the CIA. When did you know you wanted to join the CIA? And once you had that goal uh, in mind, how long did it take you to attain it? Well, you know what, I kind of back into it. Um, and, it, you know, nowadays it's a little bit different, uh, meaning that, they get a, a, a tremendous number of applications online. And believe it or not, it sounds odd, doesn't it? But the, you know, the agency um, has made a, an outreach effort over the past several years to try to make the application process, you know, somewhat more accessible, more transparent than it used to be. So, and so they get a lot of applications online. They you know, they do a lot of recruiting or, or uh, visits to campuses looking for for folks that may be interested. But in the, in, in, in the old days, not that I'm 150, but it, when I was, uh, you know, coming into the agency, it was a, a little bit different. It was more often than not, you met somebody who was in or you knew somebody who was in or yeah. it was, it was that, that sort of referral system where somebody would spot you and think, you know what, that guy might, you know, have some skills. So it was something that's very similar to what dating used to be. It used to be a family friend or a friend of a friend or somebody's sister or brother, and now we're in the world of Tinder, and the CIA is <laughs> yeah. using a similar sort of methodology, huh? Yeah, exactly. There's a, there's, there's a, there's a person actually at the agency who just sits there all day swiping left oh, on applicants. That's so uh, nice. So I would love very to... much like that. That's great. So how long were you with the agency for? 
Uh, I was there uh, over a decade and a half, or I guess about 17 years, and uh, it was a great ride. You know, it was it, by the time I realized I was getting into the agency, you know, you're kind of halfway down the path, and the next thing you know, you're, you're through the recruitment process, and it's a very tough process, and still is, in yeah. terms of all the interviews, all the work that goes into it, the testing and, and all of that. And so by the time you get accepted, and I, I went into the director of operations, by the time you get accepted, you really feel as if you've, even at that point, before you even get into any specific training, that you've accomplished something. And and uh, they, they do a very good job of, uh, of, of building up the cadre, building up the people. And so by the time you finish your actual training, which, you know, for me was a couple of years, right. You know, you're ready to to uh, to take over the world. I mean, not literally. Don't don't get me wrong. We're not going to do that. I mean, no, no, yeah, no. There's yeah. no nothing in the U.S. doctrine that has us wanting global power. <laughs> no, no. We tend to be very reserved in that respect. Um, you know, coy almost. <laughs> um, but you know what I mean. I mean, we, we, right. we come out of that, and you come out of that training, and that was that was during the Reagan years when I came out of training, and and by God, we were you know. We were, we would have jumped in front of a bus for that man, and uh, yeah. so anyway, it was uh, it was a special time. Had a great time. I have wonderful friends there still. Uh, it's just a I sound like an ad for it, don't I? But it is a a tremendous organization. It's small compared to other government organizations. It's right, a small but now, bureaucracy. Of course, the CIA. I want to get into the uh, the situation that we have right now with the uh, with the use of drones during with Obama's drone policy and how technically the CIA is in control of that. So I definitely want to talk about the expansion of power that the CIA has seen uh, certainly over the past eight years. But just sticking with this right now, can you go into some specifics of what the training was like? I mean, is it on par with becoming a Navy SEAL or is it? Uh, you know, we we do a conspiracy podcast called Last Podcast on the Left. Was there some MK Ultra techniques? Did, were you forced to trip acid in the woods and uh, and find your way, uh, you know, from Arkansas to Alabama with your with uh, only using your uh, sense of smell? Yes, yeah, actually, we yeah. The first thing you learn how to do in training is, is fashion your own tinfoil hat, um, <laughs> and then you, you 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 get that done, uh, and then you move on to to, to other things. Uh, it's you know what it it's. It, <clears throat> The, the point of the training, in part, at least on the operations side, is uh, to do. There, there's several aspects of it. You know, part of it is is your 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 learning the mission of the organization, and in that regard, it's the same as the deal. It's the same as any, um, I suppose, you know, what you want to call it, elite, you know, training mm-hmm. uh, element. And so you're learning the mission first and, and foremost. And what and is the mission? What is the mission? What's well, the mission is to, is to protect national security interests. Mm. You take your direction from the White House, no matter what the administration is. And the the goal of the organization is to, is, ever since its inception, is to gather uh, intelligence uh, that um, uh, it addresses national security concerns. And so you're you're there, despite what uh, Director Brandon just recently said, John Brandon is mm-hmm. uh, now the director of the CIA. He came out the other day and, for reasons unknown, said that the agency doesn't really engage in espionage, that it doesn't steal secrets. Mm. And, of course, it does. Um, You know, the idea that we don't steal secrets is is preposterous. So I'm not sure what his point was uh, or why he was making that point or why he was trying to, you know, parse words or whether he thought that somehow our our allies overseas or, you know, would, would believe that. But our jobs, just as any intel services overseas, whether it's our allies or hostile, is to steal information designed to 
protect national security concerns, you know, for that country. And, mm. and, uh, that's what we, that's what we did. I mean, anybody who's been in the business in the operation side, he looked at what director Brennan said, and he's a great guy. He's a very smart character, very smart and well-experienced individual, but he, he chose an odd way of describing the agency's mission. Mm. Well, speaking of espionage, I mean, so if I'm correct, like you were in the CIA in the eighties, right? Uh, eighties and nineties. Yeah. Eighties and nineties. So was, Going against the KGB in the 80s, fun or terrifying? Oh, it's fun. It's <laughs> fun. It was fun in the sense that you knew who the enemy was. Right. right? right. And it was it was pretty clear cut. There's a lot of people um, from, from that generation, I suppose, that kind of longs for those days when it was just easier in a sense. You knew, you knew who your number one enemy was. And there was a certain symmetry to the world. Mm-hmm. at that time and we had terrorism of course i mean it wasn't you know a lot of people think terrorism just showed up after 9-11 or just before 9-11 mm-hmm. and we've been dealing with muslim extremism and we've been dealing with various elements of terror and uh chasing the old school terror networks like uh, jra and, and bider meinhof and, and shining path and november 17th for a long time but you know fundamentally there was a symmetry to the world you had two superpowers uh, and they were duking it out either directly or through prox- uh, proxies, and it was mm-hmm. there was some comfort to it, um, I suppose. Yeah. And, but and, and to be fair, the, the Russians never believed the Cold War ended. I mean, Putin has no belief that the Cold War ended, yeah. so he well. carried on. Uh, in the same fashion, with the same mindset. Well, I think he makes a good point for Putin. The Cold War hasn't ended. I've seen his nipples. They're rock hard. <laughs> and I think that's yeah, what's yeah. so amazing. Um, I, I mean, as, as a presidential leader without a shirt, yeah, he's, he's certainly at the top of the food chain. Oh, he's one of the better ones. Yeah, there's no doubt. Uh, it must have been. so. Can Maybe you... Angela Merkel. I don't know. <laughs> oh, yeah. Without her shirt, yeah. Don't, don't even get me started about Merkel. <laughs> My father's a German. Something genetically, I, I just get aroused. I can't deal with it. <laughs> It's unbelievable. Do you, what are some specific differences now fighting global terrorism compared to what we had when we had the bipolar powers in the country, uh, in the in the world? Obviously, uh, race wasn't taken into account nearly as much, and political correctness was different during the 80s than the 90s as opposed to it is now. Are there more uh, handcuffs on the CIA now than there were when you were uh, serving actively? Uh, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely, and and some of it for good reason. I, and I'm not, you know, I'm, I'm not going to get into the trenches with, with uh, you know, people who think the agency's goal is to create a one world government and you know screw us all over, because um, you never shift those people off that. And and so I do agree that there's certain there's always a fine line. You've got to always you have checks and balances, and you always do risk versus gain, and you always want to ensure that you're doing the right thing. Um, but there's no doubt now that. Uh, there is more oversight uh, and and control and focus and oftentimes sort of a transparency that doesn't necessarily do national security any favors mm-hmm. uh, on the agency than than there used to be. Uh, and, there's, and 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 frankly, ever since the agency was born, it's been the most transparent intel service on on, on the planet. It just you know it's 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 gone uh, to an extreme position now. Well, I mean, it's as transparent as a secret espionage agency can be, right? So it's sort of like the healthiest menu option at McDonald's. You know, it, right, can't, it right. can't. It can yeah, only go so right. Um, can you can you uh, tell us some some stories of the '80s when you were when you were uh, working with the KGB or not with the KGB against the KGB against the Russians, the Ruskies, the good old days uh, when Patrick Swayze was an American <laughs> hero. Pain. 
the pink horde. Um, <laughs> the pink horde yeah. is amazing. Yeah. That's going to be the name um, of my first rock band. <laughs> no, you know, it, it, uh, as far as specifics, um, I suppose the answer is not really. I mean, I signed paperwork, you know, at the very outset, and I, I have to live by that paperwork until I die. Um, and that's something we take very seriously. I mean, some people take it less seriously, I suppose, and, you know, they... You know, that's their choice. But uh, yeah. so we don't talk about source and method specific operations. But I can say that the Russians, they've got a certain approach to, to things. And that approach is that um, it's not particularly a refined way of gathering intelligence. They will do a sort of a shotgun approach. They'll they'll spray the room. They'll mm-hmm. uh, they'll pitch 100 different potential assets in the belief that, well, if we get one, that's good. And right. the contrast that the agency is, is more targeted. So we. You know, we tend to spend more time looking for just that right asset. And we'll say, okay, then we're going to pitch that person as opposed to let's just do a few dozen and see whether any of them stick. So there's a, there's a fundamental difference between the way that the, uh, the agency and, 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 and the FSB now uh, views things. But, um, and, and also, you know, the, frankly, you know, the, the, the KGB is, or the FSB is extremely active here in, in the state still. You remember that, that uh, 2011 or 2010, we had uh, those 11 sleeper assets that were wrapped up in New Jersey. Do you yeah. know that story? Oh, the, are you and, talking about the hottest spy in the world? Yes, yes, exactly. That's how it that, it, it devolved into that very quickly. It was like they, they announced right. you know, that the Bureau had wrapped these people up, and within a day or two, Jay Leno was making jokes about it on, mm-hmm. on, the, uh, on the evening uh, shows, and primarily because of Anna Chapman, the, the, the one that was you know reportedly hot. And... Um, but the joke there was really that those people, those assets, those sleeper agents, had no other job other than to just live in New Jersey in that community, and that was it. Their job was just to live there, and maybe they bump into somebody. And if they bump into somebody, then they don't do anything other than report on, I bump into somebody who's potentially of interest. Then somebody else in the FSB food chain would then take over to the job of kind of looking at them and assessing them. Mm-hmm. And then if they assessed them that they were interesting, then somebody else a little bit higher up the, key, the FSB food chain would do some development, maybe make some contact, you know, do a little deeper assessment. Then if they thought, yeah, we might have something here, somebody further up the FSB food chain would then take over, and they would actually do maybe some light tasking just to see if the person was malleable. And then eventually you get far enough up the food chain on the FSB, KGB ladder, that somebody would then be responsible for perhaps pitching that person, recruiting that person. That's the joke, because that's right. how much resource and time and effort that the Russians were putting into that effort. And that's just in one community in New Jersey. And we turned it into a, a sort of a late-night joke. Yeah. So typically, we, we tend, here in America, we tend to think of, of the world as a relatively, with the exception of, of terrorism, we tend to think of the world as a relatively benign place, right? Mm-hmm. And we always... You know, every nation acts in its own best interest, mm-hmm. but the U.S. seems to be the one that apologizes for it when we do. And so we're always looking for a peace dividend. We always thought there was going to be some dividend out of the Cold War ending, and the rest of the world never thinks that way. The Chinese don't think that way. The Chinese spend a huge amount of resource trying to steal our secrets. Right. And uh, and and so, yeah, I guess I don't know where my point is. You know what? I lost well, my point. No, it's oh, fine. I, I mean, I, I get no, that's not a problem. I'm sure, uh, you know, that's why KFC keeps that recipe under lock and key. They understand everybody wants America's vital secrets, and it tends to be regarding fried chicken and how to make it taste the best. Well, a little further on those uh, on those New Jersey spies, what specifically about that location made it interesting to the Russians? Well, that, that's not their only location. So, I mean, the idea being is that just happened to be 
Is that the, another scattershot uh, you know, type the, the, thing? The where it's like elements that they were able to pick up on that we picked up on. And so, um, you know, it's not as if they would not do the same thing and aren't doing the same thing right. in Silicon Valley or, you know, down along the Space Coast or uh, down in, in Houston around the oil and gas area. Um, you know, they're, they're extremely active. Look, the Chinese, uh, one of the first things I, you know, that I, I was involved in uh, prior to, to deploying overseas was uh, involved in looking at a, at a university where, you know, we had a, a, a Chinese student who uh, was in, in, in actuality was a military intelligence uh, asset. And what was the, the, the what, was, what was the trigger? And, what was the warning sign? What what led you guys to believe that this person wasn't there to uh, just get educated in the states? Right. Well, I mean, there's a lot of ways that that, that sort of thing comes out. Sometimes it's from an, another source who you know that has been recruited, who you identify, and and, and oftentimes that's how we we. Uh, you know, we pick up on a counterintelligence problem. Is you, you know, you find a source and they report, you know, from internally within their system that, you know, they've got an asset in your organization or, or you know, so it's there's a, a variety of ways that you, you get tipped off to something like this. But mm-hmm. my point being is that from the Chinese perspective, they just wanted that, that, that kid to go to school, you know, get very, very good grades in grad school, then get a job. And they didn't really care where he got a job because he was going to work there and then he was going to work hard. He was going to get another job and eventually it would pay off. And that payoff, may not be for 25 years. No, that payoff uh, was... they're willing to do that. So the payoff for the Chinese was to, uh, to solidify the uh, stereotype that Asians are good students. <laughs> That's it. That's that was it. Really, I see. At the end of the day, um, what they're looking to do. Right. So we mentioned earlier how technology has obviously changed. The recruiting tactics for the CIA has changed. Um, with uh, what you call assets in the States, with uh, them actually sending people over here, is that changing now with social media in that they can engage and sort of, um, I guess, radicalize people that are already in this country via the Internet and, uh, and, uh, and, 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 uh, and, and social media and things like that, where they don't have to send people over who are already pre-indoctrinated. They can indoctrinate from far away. And how is the CIA dealing with that? Well, well certainly from a terrorist perspective, and we, we, we saw it with al-Qaeda first. Al-Qaeda worked on it, and then uh, the Islamic State has kind of taken it to the next step. So for terrorism, yeah, social media has, has changed the game uh, significantly in terms of their ability to uh, influence, uh, turn uh, disaffected, unemployed, uh, easily uh, you know, impressionable, uh, oftentimes young males, over to the dark side. So social media, yeah, is a game changer from a terrorist perspective. And the Islamic State has devoted a great deal of time and effort to it. Um, right. Now, what they found is that, you know, they don't need to create large top-down structures. And al-Qaeda, um, you know, really was the model that Islamic State has been looking at, because al-Qaeda spent quite a while, uh, you know, developing what almost looked like a standard corporation, you mm-hmm. know, with leadership at the top and, uh, you know, second tier of leadership, et cetera. And as, as it went along, in this particular case, Al-Qaeda got on the back foot because we had success against them overseas. You know, they started to change. They started to create this flatter situation where they said, look, you know, just you got to sell there. You just do whatever you can do there. You do, you know, and so they, they started becoming more independent in the various locations. And we started realizing, you know, what that means. That's a much more difficult uh, game to play right. from a counterterrorism perspective. So the Islamic State is built on that. And taken it and, and, and had uh, even more success in reaching out. What are we doing about it? Well, you know, there's, there's, a, there's a, 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 a problem there. Some people say, well, I don't understand why we just don't shut these sites down. You know, every time we spot, 
you know, something that appears to be pro-ISIS, why don't we just close it down? Well, right. we could, but at the same time, uh, there is some benefit from, you know, having access points for the Islamic State or for terrorists. And so you can, you can gain a better understanding, you can identify potential sympathizers and start to develop investigations around them and understand what their, what their network might look like. Mm-hmm. Uh, so there's a combination of things that go into this, and, and you know, ultimately it has to happen in concert with several other things. So with the Islamic State, it's not just combating their social media efforts. Right. It's also we have to get better at convincing people in the Muslim communities here in the States to, uh, if they see something, say something. Right. It's just as simple as that. And, of course, a and lot of these— that's a very hard thing to do. Getting some mother right. to drop a dime on on a son who seems to be changing or has stopped going to mosque all of a sudden and appears to be disengaging from you know uh, their their life. Getting that mother to call local law enforcement is a really tough ask. Right. I mean, I know this is what happens in Minneapolis, Minnesota. They have a large Somali population. There was a group, I think, of about six kids who were going over to join ISIS there. I don't think they knew that Mall of America has a one potato, two potato, which is one of the better potato restaurants. They should just always go to the food uh, food square. I think they'd have a, a hell of a time. We had the situation with Obama's drone war, and I want to talk about the drone war a little bit, where they killed a U.S. citizen who went over and they, and they fought with ISIS. And um, the precedent was set that um, if you are considered uh, a terrorist, U.S. citizenship doesn't matter. Do you think that's a slippery slope now that they're recruiting so much in the states where the U.S. will throw out um, due process if you are considered to be a terrorist? Uh, amongst people, uh, even if the person who was born and raised and lives in uh, in America? Well, you know what, I mean, there's, there's been a, a statute on the on books, you know, for a long, long time that says if you take up arms against America, you will fit your citizenship. Um, but what about... So we, we have the right to do that. I mean, that's been a... You know, it's, it's in the, the consular fams and the, in, the, in the books of the State Department for a long time. So, no, I don't think it's a slippery slope. I think if someone takes up arms against the U.S., um, and, and with Al Lockheed, uh, the individual you're talking about that we, we droned, uh, I, you know, I don't understand why they simply didn't, you know, renounce his citizenship based on his activities. And then Bob's your uncle. He's not a U.S. citizen. Look, I, sometimes we spend a little bit too much time, and you want to you want to always think things through. And yes, of course, you know, it's privacy versus security. I get all those various arguments. Um, but this is this shouldn't be a tough argument for us. If if, if you've got somebody here in this country who takes up arms, goes over to ISIS, or you know here takes up arms against the, the U.S., uh, I don't understand exactly how we get angst-ridden over uh, whether or not to um, to revoke their citizenship and deal with them as we would some enemy combatant on the on the battlefield. Well, I think it's the slippery slope argument of let's just say Donald Trump does become president, and everyone is just uh, you know terrified. Oh, you just had to bring that up. I have to because if he is and he's forcing everybody uh, to put Trump toupees on their car, uh, and you know he just makes everybody uh, do insane Trump esque things and uh, everybody stick your right hand up in the air holy christ i mean (laughs) does he he just really wants to uh recreate 1930s 40s german pictures doesn't he oh my god who thought that was i I, you would have thought that somebody around him would have said i you know what i don't donald that's it's just maybe it's the wrong optic yeah but no i i understand what you're saying it's just that um 
It's pretty you know, much who just des- who decides where the line is. Like where yeah, like where yeah. is it like when do you have to literally take up arms and and point a gun at someone or is it can it just I mean are we uh, possibly edging on the line of thought crime here. Well, uh, no, although some countries uh, do that, but I don't think I don't think that's the case here. I think it's you've got certain categories, right? There's, it's an obvious one if someone travels over to Syria or mm-hmm. Iraq and you know takes part in, in training over there and and then tries to come back in this country. I, I just don't see that as uh, as an issue. Right. It's, uh, it's another thing here if, if, you, if you've got someone who doesn't travel but uh, starts engaging in uh, activity with uh, other sympathizers, they start collecting weapons, or they start surveilling and casing locations. And obviously we have, we have measures to take in, you know, that into account, and, so, and we have. We've got active investigations, the Bureau does, in every state of the Union right, uh, right now. They've never been this active uh, against a terrorist target. And so, you know, but I think that the idea that you've got some system, let's, let's, let's face it, we can, we can, again, we can disappear down the rabbit hole of, of hypotheticals and, and say, well, but what happens if Trump becomes president and he's going to start droning, you know, citizens here in the U.S. who, because they're thinking the wrong way. Uh, you know, okay, fine. No, yeah, I think Obama will do that. Exercise, but, <laughs> yeah. you know, we, if we're droning somebody overseas, trust me, we have gone through a great deal of angst already. And, examining the potential target and that target has gone through countless layers of of review by lawyers and and national security people and the intel community and the white house you know ultimate decision for for you know uh pushing the button on a high value target is sitting in the white house yeah and so you know it's not as if this just happens and the cia finds somebody and then says ah let's let's fire a rocket up their ass it doesn't work that way well, we'll come back to the expansion of the CIA and their power in uh, in global affairs, specifically militarily. But uh, just really quick, what was a what was one of your favorite countries you ever got to travel to? Ooh, that's a great question, isn't it? Um, you know what? I would say uh, uh, Algeria. And what was it about uh, Algeria? And 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 Lebanon. I'd say probably two favorite places. Not not all time, yeah, but certainly in the in the top five would be Algeria and Lebanon. Um, fascinating places. Uh, part of it was just how how shitty the environment was. Uh, sorry, how crappy the environment was at the time, uh, and so that always adds to the uh, to the interest and to the sort of the, the excitement and the entertainment value. Um, so you liked it yeah, because it was just surrounded by human suffering. You're like, I've got to go back. <laughs> I can't get enough of this place. Not so much, not so much human suffering as chaos, and and, right. and you know, you you knew you were in 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 the crap. I mean, I think. You know, I'm not the only one, but I mean, if you're, you know, if you're going to be doing the job, then you you want to be moving at a fairly high rate of speed, I right. think. And so, um, you know, at, at the time, you know, those places were were extremely interesting. And to be fair, also, the people are, are amazing. They're very fantastic people in both places. They're beautiful people. I love the people. They love, <laughs> they love me there. I, I'm <laughs> oh my God! When, when, when Donald is president, we're all going to start talking like that. I know. That's what I just realized. I, just, I, I got to change my way of talking. Um, well, but well, uh, yeah, I'd say those two were, were certainly towards the top of the hit parade. Well, speaking to the to the statement you just made, as far as like really enjoying the the chaos of it, do you think that sometimes that that drive uh, to find that chaos colors uh, decisions that field agents might make? Uh, no, no, it's a, it is a, despite what the feature films and the, and the, you know, the big beach books, you know, make it look to be, mm-hmm. 
um, the agency is, is, is spends a huge amount of time, uh, huge, on uh, risk versus gain calculations. So, you know, I know the image is always now they're just doing whatever crap they, they think will be fun, but the reality is, and if anybody had taken the time to read the DOJ memos that were released about the uh, uh, interrogation program, they would have realized how much uh, back and forth goes it goes on in terms of evaluating what you can and can't do. Right. Um, and so by the time an operation kicks off, um, there's been a lot of, of prep work. And if, and if there hasn't been, if you haven't done all your as much homework as possible, and that's different than getting all the intel available because most of the time you're making you know decisions based on imperfect intel. But by the time an operation kicks off, um, it's it, it's pretty buttoned up. You 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 know you uh, you you've done everything you can to uh, to minimize the potential blowback or risk. Right, and of course ensure the uh, you know you won't be prosecuted for your actions and things like that. You've went through all the checks and balances and gotten everything legal. This is why sure, I, would, yeah, yeah. I, w- I would never be a good CIA agent because I would be like, what if we thought about using Gatorade when we waterboard? You know, that's a good compromise. It's sort of, it's, it's kind of a sweeter way to do it. What, and it hydrates them better. That's the electrolytes, uh, yeah. It replaces yeah. some of the essential minerals and salts. Or, you, you know, use something like Dr. Pepper. Uh, oh, my God. It's, it's bubbly and, Ass. you know, but no, I'm kidding. I'm just kidding. And, and yeah. uh, yeah, we you know, it's, it, that, that, but that was a good example. Waterboarding was a good example of sort of the misperceptions of of the organization, and and uh, you know, it was it was you know the, the the far left would have you believe that we were waterboarding people on a on a you know minute by minute basis, right. or, you know, every day of the week for for years, and uh, and again, I think the DOJ memos show that you know there was. There was, you know, and again, this is a motive because people are going to say, I can't believe this guy's talking, trying to talk some sort of rationale around the, the waterboarding. Um, but no. yeah, it was a certain time and it yeah. was had been approved um, and it was uh, done in a judicious manner in the sense that um, it was a very limited, limited effort and program uh, mm-hmm. on those individuals that uh, were put through that. Um, then the other enhanced interrogation techniques that, you know, that the far left likes to say it's all torture or you're just talking. If you're not talking to the person, everything else is torture. They did a great job of grabbing that moral high ground. And they, they framed the argument. They did a very good job of framing the argument. Yeah. But you know what? In between talking to a detainee and actual torture, there are things like, you know, very controlled um, uh, sleep deprivation or stress positions uh, that – don't fall in the category of torture. Uh, torture isn't right, shouldn't be done, doesn't get you uh, operationally sound information. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, is there something other than just sitting and talking? And sometimes, you know, and frankly, 97% of everything we got was just by talking. Right. And that's why, you know, interrogation facilities are very, very labor-intensive places. You guys, There's a huge amount of prep work that goes into every interview, every discussion. Did, but, you, did you, know, you ever participate in any of the enhanced interro- uh, interrogation techniques? What's that? I'm sorry. Did you ever participate in any of the enhanced inter- uh, uh, interrogation techniques? 
Uh, is this just between you and me? Yeah, <laughs> and the 115 people listening. <laughs> I'm just kidding. No, no is the answer to that question. An emphatic no, and thank you for asking. No, but it's it's very interesting, though, because we do have Trump saying now that he would allow waterboarding once again, and I do think it did get a little bit blown out of proportion, and a lot of people have demonized me for saying that. So Khalid Sheikh Mohammed, for example, was waterboarded 159 times. So each pour is considered a waterboard. Each uh, pour consists of, what, about 30 seconds? Is that correct? Not even that. Not even, no, no. Thirty seconds would that's a, that's in the same amount of time. Okay. Um, you know, so it's it's. But you're right. Each pour is considered. Okay, that's one. Okay, right. that's two. Okay, that's three. And you know what? Um, as far as waterboarding goes, I'm you know fine. I say, but you know, keep it out of the kit bag. We don't go back to that. So I disagree mm. with Trump. Okay. I don't think we should. Um, but here's what I I I, I also don't think we should do we shouldn't tell the enemy exactly what we can and can't do mm -hmm. because you know what we've done now which is what the doj and the white house wanted to do is they've advised all the enemy out there and both our current and you know enemies that we can't even imagine at this point what it is exactly that we will do and that is whatever is in the army field manual now the army field manual is being carried in the back pocket of every isis member probably by now mm. they're fully aware of what can and can't be done if they get picked up off the battlefield and that, that is probably the most damaging part of this whole thing, because right. the element of surprise, the element of not knowing, the element of, of, uh, of being kept on their back foot and, and once they're picked up, that's what's uh, efficient. That's what's effective. Mm -hmm. That's what you want. Uh, whether you use any of those enhanced techniques or not, and we can't use them anymore because now they've been removed from the, uh, from the, the playbook, mm -hmm. uh, or even the threat of them. And so because of that, you know what? They have no incentive to do anything. They don't have to talk if they don't want to, because they know exactly what's coming down the pike. And so that was that was a real mistake, as far as I'm concerned, an operational mistake. Yeah. Um, to tell the people what we can and can't do. Fine, internally, fine. Say we're not going to do this. That's great. You know, I don't disagree. But at the same time, don't don't. Yeah. You know, why the need to be transparent just so we can feel self righteous and good about ourselves, right. and then say, oh, well, you don't look at that. What a load of crap. You know, the enemies that we fight now and in the future, they don't have that same concern. Well, I mean, it's and the we always, you know, anyway. Yeah, it's the idea of telling, uh, you know, a football opponent, your, the defense, what play you're about to run so they can just call the perfect defense for it. Exactly. Yes. Yeah. Yes. That's a much more eloquent way of saying what I took ten minutes to just say. Well, it was a yeah. poor football analogy at the end of the day, but I, I've never been called eloquent before. Uh, this is very nice. Yeah, I, I didn't know we could do sports analogies, so now I'm to switch gears and start doing that. Oh yeah, of course. You just have to mention John Stockton and uh, Carl Malone in a duo type analogy at any time. Really, John Stockton? Where are we? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Keep keep all your references. 80s? That's nice. <laughs> keep all your yeah. references Utah Jazz specific, please. <laughs> <laughs> That's it. That's right. So, you know, as, my, as, as Wes Unseld used to say, mm -hmm. uh, yeah, no, I, uh, and, and, and yeah, John Stockton, well, he was a great player. Oh, my uh, God. Hell of a nice pair of thighs on that guy. <laughs> Good God. Well, yeah, you want to get thighs. Look at Larry Bird back in the day. Oh, yeah. So those, those shorts, oh, my God. Yeah, that was, it, yep. it's, it's kind of funny when you look back at the old, because I, I show, I actually show my oldest boy, who's eight and playing a lot of basketball, I, I have actually shown him some of the old tape games that yeah. I've got. Um, and, uh, and, and he has actually seen John Stockton, but he's seen some of the others from that era. 
and and even he at eight years old laughs at the uh, at the shorts and the socks from back then. I mean, and, just the and, the yeah. sheer confidence of the white man back then to just show so much skin. Uh, ridiculous. Cameras were worse then. Yeah, this yeah. We're, white is not good for HD. Uh, that is no, for sure. No, no it, doesn't, it doesn't translate well. Not so at I all. Those, yeah, yeah. Anyway, um, but um, so, so I, I, I think that you know you look at you look at. Uh, to going back to that that earlier question about you know what are we doing um, to combat you know the sort of the social media again kind of close that that little loop it, aside from the social media and the Muslim outreach to get those communities to talk to us then we have the other element which is deny them territory we've got to take away their territory and right. that's one of the, the 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 great successes they've had in the terms of their recruitment is having physical territory that they can point to as their own. Well. Is America's primary system working? Is the Electoral College still the best process for electing a president? Could a third-party candidate ever be successful? In a new season of You Might Be Right, former Tennessee governors Bill Haslam and Phil Bredesen gather the country's top experts to explore these issues and more as we approach the 2024 presidential election. Listen to You Might Be Right, a new podcast from the Baker School at the University of Tennessee, available now wherever you get your podcasts. In a fast-paced world, every day brings new challenges and new opportunities. At Strayer University, we know a thing or two about getting and staying ahead of change. For over 130 years, we've been providing students like you with innovative tools and customized support. So you can find your way forward and always keep striving. Visit Strayer.edu to learn more. Strayer University is certified to operate in Virginia by CHEV and has many campuses, including at 2121 15th Street North in Arlington, Virginia. This is what I wanted to ask next. I was against George W. Bush going into Iraq. I thought it was a terrible uh, political uh, foreign policy decision, and it really messed up our country. But I was also against Barack Obama pulling out. Um, if Barack Obama never pulled out of Iraq, which I believe created the uh, vacuum that allowed ISIS to really prosper, would the CIA have the drone program that it has now, and would the CIA have uh, as much power uh, as the agency has now? Well, the power is actually not as great as it used to be. Um, they have so less I, I would power. Disagree with, I would disagree with that in the sense that we've created more layers. We put the DNI over the top of the agency. What's the uh, DNI? And, uh, the Directorate of National Intelligence. So, you know, Clapper is currently the, the, the DNI, the, the head of that. And he sits over the top of the CIA and the other uh, intel uh, organizations. And then the military has also taken some of the responsibilities that used to reside uh, or not so much taking responsibilities, but develop their own capabilities, which is, um, you know, spread some of the uh, activity and work around. And that was kind of came out of the old Rumsfeld era, and he was very keen on on developing uh, the Pentagon's uh, intel capabilities. Mm -hmm. uh, he used to, I think he kind of chafed a little bit at the fact that the CIA, in his mind at that time, did have too much power. Mm. So... There's, 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 there's that element. The drone program um, has expanded under President Obama, I think, in part, yes, because uh, you know he, he was so keen to get out of there. Now, you can argue all day long about you know Iraq and the wisdom of going into Iraq, and and frankly, I don't believe we should be engaged in, in nation building. Mm -hmm. But once you're in there, you're in there. So all those conversations about the morality of being there, it, that's, that's a kind of a, again, a nice theoretical exercise, but you got to get on with it. 
Right. And the fact that we left created that vacuum, and the vacuum's not a good thing out in that part of the world. So, you know, we've been watching Iraq collapse and, and, mm-hmm. and kind of deteriorate. We've got six, you know, going on seven failed states out in the Middle East right now, Iraq being one of them. But the idea of the drone program expanding in part was because, you know, they were looking for a way to, you know, to fill the gap with, uh, with our ground troops out. Right. But also in part because the president, you know, President Obama, likes the uh, the remoteness of it all. Right. Um, he doesn't have to justify it necessarily uh, on a constant basis. And also, part of it is he has no interest, um, nor do his, his folks, of picking up detainees, frankly. Well, that's... And they'll argue that's not the case because they, we just picked up one. Um, well, huzzah for us, we could have picked up hundreds of them over the past mm-hmm. few years if we'd been focused on it. Um, but... You know, the idea that he's going to pick up detainees and, and, and put them in Guantanamo and add to that population, he's not going to do that. So what's happened is we've ended up killing more terrorists that we would have in the past uh, tried to pick up off the battlefield and use mm-hmm. for operational intelligence. And so the pipeline has been drying up um, as we've been droning more of them. And part of it is also sort of a lack of top cover. After you know they came in, the DOJ started looking at whether they were going to go after uh, members of the intel community who have been involved in the rendition and interrogation programs, you know, that sends a message. And so you guys out in the field who are doing the mm. operations, you know, they think, well, I'm you know, I'm not going to, you know, get my you know, package in a crank here by picking up somebody, so let's just paint the target and, and whack them. Right. Um, so you've got all these little elements combining to account for, you know, this expanded drone program. And don't get me wrong, I think, you know, the drone program's great, you know, used to use properly. Well, that's one of the. Um, that's but one of the... I also think it's great to stuff the pipeline with operational leads and intelligence from detainees that you're able to pick up. Right, because corpses don't talk. Obviously, that's one of the ironies of uh, Obama uh, wanting to close Guantanamo Bay, which I do believe he'll be doing now with executive order. A lot of people think it's such a humanitarian thing, but the irony is, of course, he's killing them uh, on the battlefield with no due process. We talked about it on a, f- a few episodes ago. They've 5,000 mm-hmm. plus. Uh, many of them, the percentages are as high as 80%, some uh, say, as far as innocent civilians. I talked about it on Kennedy uh, yesterday on Fox Business. Uh, she says hello, by the way. Oh, that's very nice. She's, yeah. a, she's a lovely, a lovely woman. She is a uh, lovely woman. I like that, by the way, Ben Kissel. Ben Kissel in Corpses Don't Talk. That's like a, like a film noir. <laughs> That's so. right. Um, but now with the so with the drone, uh, with the CIA being in control of the drone program, which now has taken such a lead on the war against terror, is there any um, rifts between the military as far as the army, the navy? Um, is there the, the Marines, the SEALs? All the, I don't know. You know, um, is there a rift? Is there any? Is there any um, uh, conflict or? Um, I guess. Well, what is the communication between the agencies? Like, is the the CIA? What are they in? Uh, how are they in communication with uh, different branches of the military? Like, say, you know, a uh, the Marines or the Army is uh, involved in one operation, mm-hmm. and the CIA might come in and do a drone operation that might screw up the Army's operation. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, we keep in touch with each other by Facebook. Uh, <laughs> oh, that's nice. We, yeah, and we and we we use Twitter a lot. Um, no, the, you know what, the, the agency, um, I mean, you know, the CIA has had a, a paramilitary uh, element since we got started. That's pretty much how we got started out of World War II or during World War II. Uh, and so our ties to the military have always been very, very tight. You know, we've had a military liaison um, element within the, uh, the organization almost forever. And 
you know, there's a lot of cross training that goes on. Um, and you know, so, and, and in reality, a, a lot of times it's, it's the agency people that are, you know, at the front edge of the spear that are touching down ahead of the arrival of the spec ops guys, mm-hmm. you know, to, you know, soften the target or to, you know, identify targets or to kind of pave the way, uh, because the agency has a remit that allows us to do things that, that the military can't necessarily do. And so that, but the, so I guess what I'm saying is the communication is very tight. The, the relationship is very tight. They, there's a, there's a real appreciation uh, within the agency as to what uh, our special forces uh, can do and are capable of. And that's a, that's a good thing because you want, mm-hmm. you want real tight cooperation there. And you think that, uh, I mean, obviously post 9-11, we sort of, uh, it came to light that these agencies were competing with one another as opposed to supporting one another and sharing information. Uh, do you think they're sharing more information than ever before? Well, that was mostly, that was, that was, that wasn't really the military. That was FBI you know, and CIA, you know, between like the FBI and, and the agency and, you know, and other, you know, law enforcement. And, you know, that's, it's, the relationship is much better now than it was, yeah. you know, uh, 10 years ago, 12 years ago, 15 years ago. Um, you know, I, I, I have a huge amount of respect for the FBI that just know some terrific people there, uh, and, and they just work like dogs. Um, and so they're, um, they're really good people. Uh, how, so how, the relationship is much better than it used to be. Hmm. Well, how did the uh, addition of, uh, the Department of Homeland Security change things? Um, it added more bureaucracy. You can't take all those various organizations that they jammed into DHS, uh, put them all together in a big mashup and expect it to, uh, act as efficiently as you might like it to on occasion. Now, they, don't get, again, don't get me wrong. They, they, uh, they've got an important mission. They, they, uh, they've got great people. Uh, but it, um, it, it was a difficult concept to, um, to see through. Yeah. And, and, and so that, you know, even to this day, um, there are some, um, you know, efficiencies I think that could be created by probably, dismantling DHS and doing it in a different fashion. But look, DHS and, and DNI were uh, sort of knee-jerk byproducts of, of 9-11. Right. Sort of Band-Aids, right? Well, yeah, Band-Aids and, 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 and this notion that, well, we just have to do something, so let's do it. Mm-hmm. You know, not, not every um, terrorist attack is an intelligence failure. And that's usually our default position. Something happens and it's like, oh, my God, there's an intelligence failure. Well, you know what? No, it's not. Uh, it's remarkable that we haven't had more uh, terrorist attacks and the reason is is because there's a lot of people working very hard to prevent those right. but you understand if you work in counterterrorism that it's not a zero-sum game you're never going to reduce the risk something's going to get through it's just unfortunately the way it works but here you know we've become used to this idea that somehow we're going to reduce the risk not just in counterterrorism but in life in general mm-hmm. uh, down to zero and so whenever something does happen, the knee-jerk reaction is to, you know, say, oh, it's a failure, so let's create another layer of bureaucracy. Let's put together a commission. Let's do something. Um, well, that's where we're hitting right now with yeah. the San Bernardino, uh, the San Bernardino mass shooting, this whole iPhone unlocking business. Is that a lot of people, you know, I've, I've heard some people say that they're like, listen, there's probably not any useful information on this phone here. But for some reason, they're really hitting hard, uh, all these uh, really hitting hard uh, on Apple to unlock this. Like, is that just another example? Do you think they actually think there's something there or do you think they're just kind of trying to do something? To move the well, investigation no, here's, further. Here's, here's where I stand with that. Is that, and I just I've had meetings to the bureau, and, and these guys, um, 
they don't do anything. It's not like just a whim. They don't do something just because they think, well, let's do it for the sake of it. Uh, they, they've got a phone, and they pulled out of the truck of the shooter, right? Uh, he killed 14 people in his, in his wife. Uh, they pulled the, the phone out of his truck. It's his county phone. Two of his phones that he had, he had, he had, uh, he had destroyed beyond recovery. So they have this one phone. So they went to his workplace. They were able to uh, change the uh, password so that mm-hmm. they could up or download what was there uh, from the iCloud. Now, the iCloud had only been uh, the last contact was in October. So they had two months from October to the shootings that they knew they had was material on that phone. And this is where, again, this is one of those things about you know how arguments get emotive and, and a lot of information gets out there that may not necessarily be correct. That whole argument about metadata, you remember the whole metadata mm-hmm. argument? You know, there was a lot of people saying, well, the government, you know, they're collecting all your conversations. They're collecting all your text messages. And like, no, they're not. They were collecting numbers. They were collecting a number, and they were collecting a date. And so they could get total volume of that called. And the idea being, if a known terrorist outside the U.S. was reaching in through a number that reached through to the U.S., then, yes, they wanted to know that that number had been called on a date. They didn't know what was said. They didn't have a text message or a conversation. They then had to go through the courts to get approval to get that information out. And that is what we're talking about here with the San Bernardino is they took this phone. Once they realized they had a volume of text messages on there for the two months leading up to the shooting, that's part of the investigation. They do all the other parts of the investigation, right? They do everything else that you're going to do. But technology has changed things. So unless you're willing to say, well, we know there's two months worth of text messages from the shooter on this phone who just killed 14 people mm-hmm. in, in a professed love of, of ISIS, unless you're willing to say, well, but it's not important because, you know what, I, I, don't, I don't really think they should be able to get that. So the Bureau went to Apple before this court order. They went to Apple already quietly and said, you take the phone. You hold on to the phone physically on Apple campus, wherever you're going to do this, and just – Create the file you need, the force on there, so that you can not have all the text messages deleted after 10 attempts to get you know, through the, uh, the passcode. And they said no. And so the bill said it again several times, said, you hold, no, Apple, you hold the phone. We don't want the phone. You hold the phone. We don't want the file that you use to unlock it. We just want the text messages. And then you can destroy whatever you did right at that moment. As soon as you get the text message, fine, destroy it. You know, that, we don't care. But give right. us the text messages. And this is where Apple has decided to draw the line, which is an interesting thing. And they say at first they wanted to say, well, they wanted to create a backdoor to all devices. Well, then they realized, well, that's not what they're trying to ask for. So and they couldn't support that in their in their. So then they said, well, they're they're setting a precedent. Well, yes. You know what? And the precedent is not to get overheated on this, but the precedent has already been set, which is that Congress, people's representatives decided what was appropriate, what could be done through the courts. And the courts make the decision about whether there's probable cause. And the precedent is that if the Bureau believes there's probable cause, then they go through that process. If they can get a court-approved order, then they go and they request that support from the company. Mm-hmm. Do you and th- that's already been done. Do you think it's and, a situation— But somehow this turned into this emotive argument about backdoors and, oh, my God, right. it's bringing down the, the collapse of the free world of Tim Cook and his comments. Right. And I, I, I'm not quite sure how people get there. But, again, I understand that— you, the, the conversation is important. The privacy versus security conversation is always important. Um, but from an operational perspective, um, this is uh, – from an investigative standpoint, it, it's hard to understand what the, the, the concept is here. 
Well, I think it's something sort of symbolic as well in a capitalist country, specifically uh, this one. Corporations are very large, and they are uh, in many ways more important than government. And so you wonder if Apple, um, we, we talked about it in the last episode, the U.K. with Loretta Lynch's support is going to be able to sue American companies if their products uh, supposedly do something, do harm to somebody overseas. They're going to be able to press charges on a U.S. company. So do you feel like maybe it's something with Apple and Tim Cook specifically – they want to maintain power over their technology, and they don't want the government to be intruding specifically on them, not thinking about the greater good for the country. Well, I think that, I think what what they want to do is just is just um, not have responsibility. I think they don't they they would prefer not to be in the loop on these arguments. So that's part of the process since 2014 of them saying, "Look, we don't know how to get into this either." So hey, you know, you can't come to us because uh, we don't know. Well, not our, not yeah. our deal. And I so think I think there's a there's an uh, they're trying to advocate responsibility that I think is is uh, is 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 again confusing in light of the fact and people say well look there's a bureau you know they're going to have other phones they want to unlock well yes and if right. they've got probable cause and they go through the process that's been approved by Congress and the courts and they get that then yes they should go and and be able to make that case. Sure. Well, but, I think it's even simpler uh, than that. Yeah. I think what Apple is doing here, Apple, this is a PR coup uh, because Apple saw an opportunity because Apple's not cool anymore. Apple used to be the coolest product around, and they needed something to bring them back to the forefront, something that everyone could get behind. I don't think it has to do – because I think with you saying that if it, you know they went to Apple and they told them, listen, you can do this, don't worry about it, we just want the information, and Apple comes out with – Oh, they're trying to take away our freedoms. I think Apple's just trying to ride a wave here. It could be. I don't want to get too caught up on the Apple thing. I, I'm no, I'm over. Right, right. What do you think? Well, I mean, I, I can't get into Tim Tim Cook's head, but yeah, uh, you know, it, clearly, it you know, even if it was unintentional, it, it gave them you know sort of a boost in the uh, in the minds of all those people out there who, right. you know, again, believe that the government's just out to screw everybody. Um, so yeah. uh, you know, huzzah for him, uh, but. You know, again, you look at Apple selling their products in China. Do you really think that Apple's cut a deal with yeah. China where the Chinese authorities can't get into those phones? I, I don't think so. I think there's probably more self-interest there from a corporate perspective to sell their goods in that big market. Sure. So, I don't, you know, I don't know. I'm not, I'm not buying it. And I think from an operational perspective, because I, I know the guys at the bureau and I know how frustrated they are with this investigation, and it's just, it's. You know, it's difficult. But, I, again, I understand the need to have those discussions about privacy and security. That's always a good discussion to have. And that pendulum between those two points always swings back and forth, and it gets calibrated constantly. And, you know, usually it always swings over to security when we have an incident. And if we haven't had an incident for a while, people have ADD, and they forget that, you know, even though we're tired of the war on terror, you know, that the hostiles aren't. And so it right. swings back towards privacy, and yeah, I get that. No, the war on terror is very, very fun for a young youth in uh, in Iraq. They're having a great time. <laughs> oh, yeah. They're having a hell of a... Yeah. So uh, <laughs> uh, what what is one thing, after all the information that you've gotten in your life, out of all the uh, you know top secret things that you've learned about the world, what's something that keeps you awake at night that maybe us as common citizens uh, don't really think about, maybe we take it for granted, um, specifically domestic in this country, um, in the time that we live in right now, what's something that, uh, an unforeseen event that, that makes you terrified? Yeah, um, I, I know about terrified, but certainly at the top of the hit parade is, is just the constant attack uh, that our uh, private and public infrastructure uh, is under 
from um, state and non-state sponsored hackers out mm. there uh, who are constantly probing, uh, again, both government and, and commercial sector sites, our, our infrastructure, um, and the banking system, uh, utilities, energy, uh, and you know, it is just a constant assault uh, on our on our systems. Um, and you know, part of that, and a spinoff of that, is is uh, sort of the frailty of our uh, power grid. And that's probably the big thing. And, right. and it, it doesn't even have to be a terrorist attack, you know. But it, but you know, we talk about the infrastructure here all the time. But the power grid is 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 very vulnerable, and it's an aging power grid. And it was never designed to withstand the sort of uh, cyberspace probing and, and, and potential attacks and certainly physical terrorist attacks that, uh, that are, are, or could be, you know, perpetrated now. Right. And if that power grid goes down, I mean, you know what it's like if you're in a place where, you know, power goes off for two or three days, you know, that people start acting as if, uh, you know, the zombies are coming over the wall. Oh yeah. No, and, it's a great time. I almost die uh, from alcohol poisoning in every hurricane <laughs> and we don't even lose power, oh. but they just say you might. So I'm like, I'm going to get drunk for this. Yeah. That's it. I'm done. I'm gonna fill up the bathtub, save some water, and you know, get all the bread and milk off the shelves with the Piggly Wiggly. And oh, so man. It's, it's uh, you know, that's that's a, that's a big part of it. That's one of those big things that if you and, and if you ask, you know, the intel community and and law enforcement, you know, what keeps you up at night? And the power grid always is towards the top of that hit parade. Right. They never say a prostitute, which is too bad. Um, what would it look like if the power grid got? If the power grid was hit by a terrorist attack, what does it look like for this country? Uh, how many days do you think before it just uh, chaos ensues? Well, it depends on the on the nature of the attack and, and you know how much of it goes out. Look, we've only got three grids in the country. We've got East, West, and Texas. Um, and we, we we've seen sort of the, the cascading effect if if you know uh, on the uh, on the grid in terms of the, remember the blackouts in New York mm. um, and so. You know, I've seen people, you know, panicking after two or three days of no power, and then suddenly they they realize that, you know, they're running out of cash, and the cash machine's not working, and you know, they don't have any gas in their car, and you know, maybe they they run out of eggs, and so it it wouldn't take long. Not to say there'd be a, a, a breakdown of society, but and you know, if that power goes down and stays down, because and it could be a natural event, it could be it doesn't have to be a terrorist attack, but a natural event or a terrorism or or a cyber attack. And that grid goes down for two, three months. Um, that that power structure runs basically everything else: transportation, you know, banking, uh, you know, the the, the food industry. Um, it it mm-hmm. is a uh, it is a real problem. Yeah. And so, you know, I'm not a, I'm not a prepper, you know, by any means. Even though I live out in Idaho, yeah, uh, which is a great state, by the way. But oh, is it? Um, yeah. Oh, it's a. Oh, are you kidding? I don't know. It's one of the you know one of the great secrets of this country. Beautiful. <laughs> no, I've been there. It's, I've been there. It's very nice. I don't know if it's a secret though. It's on the map. I mean, it's not like there's not like a part of the map well, that's okay, just like what's fine. that gray fine. area? Well, we don't well, talk about it. Find it on the map. Let's put it that. Yeah, way. that's very true. Um, just really quick too, uh, uh, you know, tactics wise, we talked about the FBI in Garland, Texas, um, when they they um, the Draw Muhammad contest and they offered uh, it was ten thousand dollars security beefed up. The FBI was aware, obviously, two people who had become uh, radicalized went down and shot up the area. And I know the CIA um, does similar things where they sort of um, they feed people along and they, they, they give them a lot of, you know, the, uh, the, the uh, necessary means to uh, pull off a terrorist attack. And then right before they do it, 
uh, of course, they arrest them. Isn't that the best approach? Isn't that just um, theater as opposed to going out and stopping actual terrorist activity? Well, they do that as well. So it's not, it's not a, like a one thing or another, but if you, if you identify, uh, and the Bureau does this, I mean, you know, and, and state and local law enforcement, it's not really a, the agency doesn't run uh, what you would call sort of the traditional sting operations. The agency's busy trying to identify and recruit sources inside or on the periphery of, of terrorist organizations uh, to get that intelligence. But from a law enforcement perspective, you know, if you, uh, you know, have someone in, to a tip or whatever it is and you identify that that individual is uh, sympathetic to ISIS, as an example, um, and is looking to communicate with ISIS members and identify a way that they can contribute, um, then, again, under the category, if you're doing all your other things as well, then what are you going to do? Just not bother? Um, so you have to you have to cover all the bases. It's, it's a very difficult process, and this right. you know the fact again that we haven't had a major attack since 9/11 is not some happy circumstance. It's mm-hmm. not just a coincidence. It's it's just constant work, constant effort, and it, most of it, almost you know, a, a great vast majority of it happens off the radar screen that people don't see, and so they become I don't want to say complacent, but you know they move on as they should. Yeah, and they start to think, well, there's, there's really no threat, and all this, people are overreacting. And um, do you feel it, like we're falling? In, do you feel like we're falling into that sort of malaise right now as a country? Absolutely, sure, and, I, and I, for good reason. We're all tired of it, mm-hmm. I mean, in, in part because we tried that nation-building exercise in Afghanistan and Iraq, and you know we gave up so much uh, blood and treasure, so much important, uh, you know. Uh, so, and you think about that, and. And it's just exhausting. Uh, but, you know, the people that aren't tired are, are the, the terrorists and the right. Muslim extremists. They're very energized right now. Right. Um, and so we have to, you know, we have to understand, yeah, of course, people are going to, you know, kind of move on again, as they should. But the people involved in counterterrorism and in homeland defense and in national security, they, they don't have that luxury. They got to keep ticking along. Right. I mean, people in you know, joining ISIS, they can't get distracted by, um, you know, I am Kate. They don't have the they don't have the ability to do that. They they are they they're con- exactly. You can't binge watch on the Kardashians or I don't know, yeah whatever the new house watch of, on. yeah House of Cards season. Um, well, let's switch gears really quick, and then then I promise you, you can go back to your life, and you never have to speak to me again. <laughs> your life will be better. This is this is our form of torture, by the way. See, now I know how you get ninety eight percent of your information just from talking to somebody. You just never stop. Oh yeah, absolutely. That's, yeah. that's how it, that's how it works. <laughs> You're begging for that Gatorade waterboard right about now. Um, tell us about the travel cha- uh, travel channel show America Declassified. Oh yeah, that was a, it. Was a, a great experience. Um, it, it uh, I got a call from the folks at uh, at the very outset before we agreed to do the show, and they called up and said, "Look, are you interested in traveling around the country, uh, seeing some amazing things, investigating, you know, old stories and you know some conspiracies, but you know mostly just seeing incredible things and talking to great people?" And I thought, "Well, what am I, an idiot? Of course, I, I'd like to do that." So I got involved with the show uh, produced by uh, Indigo Films out of San Francisco and Los Angeles. Some great people. Seth Eisler, Glenn Kirschbaum, David Frank, and others, and uh, Paul Sauer. And, and we put together this season of shows for um, for Travel Channel that aired, I guess the first season aired about two years ago. And it was a great experience. did very well for them on Sunday evenings. Nice. And so they ordered a second season. And then because it's television, 
after they'd gotten geared up and started the uh, production, uh, just at the beginning of the production for the second season, they got some new executives at, at Scripps, which owns mm. the, uh, the Travel Channel and a bunch of others. And some new executive apparently decided by watching the show with his, his young daughter that it was too dark and too mm. foreboding. Oh, and I can't. So they hired not, an ex CIA agent to go to a travel <laughs> show and it was too dark. Your favorite places are Lebanon. <laughs> I know. I know. I, 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 I did not see it coming, though. Shocking. And so, and we had, I, I co hosted, we had some great people on there uh, co hosting the, you know, the, the, this show. And, uh, and anyway, so that what they said was, let's lighten it up. Can we lighten it up? So um, it, that morphed then into the production of a show called World Access, which they're still editing and will be getting ready to release here in the near future, but now there's some talk about bringing back also uh, American Declassified uh, for uh, for another run. Right. Uh, because, again, it did, it did well for them. But it was a great experience. And the best part about it was you realize, um, I had forgotten just, A, how big this country is, and B, just how many amazing places there are. And, yeah. you know, some of the episodes that we had a chance, the things that we had a chance to do, I went down to Memphis and uh, went to the Lorraine Motel, had a chance to sit on the balcony, there uh, outside the door where Martin Luther King was shot with, with Billy Kyles, Reverend Kyles, who was with Martin Luther King uh, at that moment when he was shot mm. and had a chance to spend three or four hours just talking to him about what that experience was like. Uh, had a I'm chance surprised to he didn't go stand where the shooting. We ran some tests in, uh, in Dallas on the JFK shooting and was able to fire a rifle down there at uh, Dealey Plaza to replicate, you know, sort of the potential second shooter scenario. I mean, we just did some great things. That's awesome. A- any conspiracy theory that you came across, because I know you hate conspiracy theories, but you were like, this one could be true. Do you entertain any of them? Yeah, you know what? I, I will say one something about Martin Luther King's situation. James Earl Ray was a two-bit, you know, uh, unsuccessful, uh, bumbling criminal. Uh, every time he'd, he'd commit some crime, he'd, he'd make away with $5 from the local you know, supermarket or whatever, he would get picked up immediately almost. I mean, he was just a bumbling crime, uh, criminal. And uh, and then uh, leading up to the Martin Luther King shooting, he changed. And suddenly he had access to cash. And suddenly his whole mm. persona changed. And he suddenly, all of a sudden he, he looks like a professor or an engineer. I mean, he's dressed up well. Um, and then after that, he jets off to Europe. I mean, this guy had never, you know, flown overseas. He'd never seen, you know, decent amount of cash before. Suddenly, he's flying around Europe, you know, and get and, and gets picked up in London uh, eventually. Uh, that seems it, it stands out. And I'm not saying one thing or another. I'm just saying that's one of those parts of a story that you look at, and you, it's hard to reconcile until so you understand mm. how you know stories or conspiracy ideas you know, are generated and then stick around. So that would sort of explain maybe why people believe the government set him up to kill uh, MLK. Maybe this was the reward, the pre-reward before he committed uh, the crime that everyone knew he would go down for. I have no idea. I'm just saying that when you say, you know, any, any anything come out of these stories that, yeah. that struck you as odd, that strikes me as odd, you know? Right. Um, but then it, it splinters off into, you know, a, a, a dozen or two, uh, very unusual, you know, uh, conspiracy theories. I'm just saying that I understand how those theories kind of live uh, because that aspect yeah. of it is unusual. Do, do you think the government benefits or is hindered by conspiracy theory? Um, that's, a, that's a great question. I think there's, you know, when you look at the Israelis as an example. The Israelis sort of live off of this notion that, you know, they're, the Mossad is, uh, you know, um, all-powerful. And all knowing, and and 
and uh, you know conspiracies or, or or myths or legends or whatever. I you know sometimes they you know they they can benefit you I suppose, but from from a government perspective here in the U.S. Uh, you know the the thing that I see most out there is that you know there is this element of society that just believes the government is, is no matter who's in charge the government's just there to screw us over mm-hmm. and I you know I spent too much time behind the curtain you know working uh, inside the government to believe that but I you know I understand why you know there's that 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 belief out there with some so and when, I think that's manifested now to some degree with this anger that we're seeing in the campaign season. Right. So when you were working behind this, um, behind the curtain, how many reptilians did you meet? <laughs> oh man, uh, you know I, I, I can't even. If I start talking about that, uh, the line's going to go dead. And <laughs> you're going to be left wondering whatever happened to Mike. He was a nice enough guy, um, and that, that'll be the end of that. And I, you know, I got a family to take care of. I can't. No, I can't. Uh, I can't talk about. Oh right. That. I'm sorry for even asking. Yes. Oh Please. my God, Honestly. Mike. Uh, I know. Thank, I gotta go. Yeah, I know it. I know it. I went too far. Thank you so much yeah. for being on the show, Mike. I really appreciate it. We really appreciate it. Yeah, thank it. you so much. No, this, this is was a great. great conversation, and thank you because it's always nice. You know what it's like, Ben. I mean, you yeah. you get on uh, whatever network it is, whether it's Fox or any of the others, and and you've got like two and a half minutes to talk about something that's incredibly complex. So this yeah. is, this has been a really great opportunity. It was better than Joe Rogan's show, right? <laughs> oh. Are you kidding? I mean, even Joe said that. Joe said, I heard, you know, when I sat down with him the other day, he said, I heard you're going to talk to Ben. And I said, yeah. yeah, man, if I could just be as good as Ben. I know and, it. Uh, I know it. I, can't. I, I, I told Joe, I said, keep at it, man. <laughs> so. Oh, man. Oh, you're so great. All right. Um, Mike, thank you so much for being here. And check Mike out. Uh, do you have a uh, future Fox uh, news uh, gig coming up or anything like that? Anything you want to plug? Uh, whenever I'm in town, I do, you know, I, I, I like to do red eye, I like to do yep. uh, Kennedy, um, but uh, nothing, nothing uh, immediate. Just people keep an eye out on on uh, travel for uh, for world uh, world access and, and America declassified. And you know, if you need any uh, global intelligence or security assistance, you know, my company Diligence is always out there and 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 waiting to, to pick up the phone from your call. So that's for right. all your information and security needs. That's Diligence. And you're on Twitter. Mike Baker is on Twitter at MB Company Man. So follow him immediately. And uh, of course, you can find Marcus Parks on Twitter at Marcus Parks. I'm at Ben Kissel. And uh, thank you guys so much for listening. We'll talk to you soon. For more shows like the one you just listened to, go to cavecomedyradio.com. Can you remember a time when you thought someone you disagreed with might actually be right? In the new podcast, You Might Be Right, former Tennessee governors Bill Haslam and Phil Bredesen pose that question to guests like Paul Ryan, Al Gore, and Judy Woodruff. Come for the stories, stay for the substance and expert insights into some of the most challenging issues facing the country, including affordable housing, crime, and education. Listen to You Might Be Right a new podcast from the Baker School at the University of Tennessee, available wherever you get your podcasts. In a fast-paced world, every day brings new challenges and new opportunities. At Strayer University, we know a thing or two about getting and staying ahead of change. For over 130 years, we've been providing students like you with innovative tools and customized support. So you can find your way forward and always keep striving. Visit strayer.edu to learn more. Strayer University is certified to operate in Virginia by CHEV and has many campuses, including at 2121 15th Street North in Arlington, Virginia.